I've said it a number of times, and probably before I die, we'll say it a lot more. The sure way you can determine whether Jesus has left the building or not is to listen for the laughter of God's people. If there's no laughter, he's gone, and you should leave the laughter of the redeemed. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here this morning. We hope we're a welcoming fellowship. But if you're like us, you probably have mixed motives for the reason you came. If you're a guy, you think the girls are hot. <laughs> And if you can convince them you are Christian, you maybe can work something out. Or if you're a young lady, there's some good-looking guys in this place. and You're even now trying to find somebody to introduce you. And you think that if he's a Christian and he thinks you are, you can work something out. I want to help. I really do. In fact... I can teach you uh, some words to use. I'll teach you how to smile, a Christian smile. I'll tell you the kind of Bible to get. It's got to be black and big, and you carry it in your hand. I'll teach you some of our music, but listen to me. I can't teach you to laugh the laughter of the redeemed. Every year I go to the Billy Graham Training Center in the mountains of North Carolina to teach seminars. And they prepare those a year and a half in advance so they can advertise it when I'm there the next time. They can say, assuming he doesn't drool or die, that he will teach on this subject the next year. They said, what are you going to teach on? And I had not the foggiest idea. And I told him, I'm going to teach on the laughter of the redeemed. And when they announced it to the crowd, <laughs> some of the people said, what in the world is that about? And I said, we're going to gather in this magnificent conference center and we're going to tell each other our best jokes. And some of the people were not happy with that. That's not spiritual. That's not Christian. When you're my age, you miss a lot of people. I miss Ben Hayden, First Presbyterian in Chattanooga. You've seen him on television and heard him on radio change lives. The former lawyer and newspaper editor, uh, CIA operative, and he sounds so in your face. But if you've never heard Ben Hayden laugh, it's too late. His laughter is loud, and I can close my eyes and I can hear it. The laughter of Ben Hayden the laughter of the redeemed. I think of Jim Kennedy. Do you ever think when you watched him on television, there is an uptight 
truly reformed PhD. And he was that, and when he died, people said nice things about him, but I remember a hotel room in St. Louis at one o'clock in the morning when we were laughing like little girls, and the people in the room next to us had to come and tell us to sit on it. The laughter of the redeemed. We all miss Billy Graham. <laughs> the staff of the Billy Graham Association are always saying things about Mr. Graham that are really funny. He was a hypochondriac, and he was the first one that they said about him they were going to put on his gravestone, I told you I was sick. And when Mr. Graham heard that, he laughed and laughed, self-effacing laughter, the laughter of the redeemed. I miss my late mentor, Fred Smith, so much, but I miss his jokes, too. When he died, I spoke at his funeral, and he did, too. And you said, no, he didn't, yeah, he did. Four days before he died, he recorded a video. And when I looked up, I told you this. He was on the screen, and he was laughing. And he said, seeing as how so many people are here, it'd be a shame for me not to say something. And I thought, that's Fred Smith. That's the laughter of the redeemed. Jesus and laughter go together, and foolishness and laughter and Jesus go together. Speaking of foolishness, I have a text for you. It's in 1 Corinthians, and it's the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to start at the 18th verse and uh, read down through the fifth verse of the second chapter. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world or sent in the wisdom of God? The world did not know that God through wisdom. It Please, God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts or let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I've been doing this for a very long time, and I have spoken at more funerals than I can even imagine. And I've gone to hundreds and hundreds of wakes. You know what amazes me? I've never been to a wake where there wasn't laughter. Not even one after all these years. You, you know what really blows me away. I love God's people. I don't know why. Some of them love me, and I don't know why that is either. But sometimes I stay awake worried about people who are going through really, really hard stuff. Abuse. Cancer. The death of a child homelessness, dealing with all kinds of sexual issues, and the people of God keep me going with their perseverance and their faith and their laughter. You don't know him, but you should. His name is Kent Keller, and I love him more than I can possibly say. He was the youth minister in a church I served. And then he got a viral infection that almost killed him. We thought he was going to die. He's now paraplegic, confined in a wheelchair. He can move one arm, and that's just about it. And he's the pastor of Kendall Presbyterian Church. 
in Miami. Every time I go to Miami, we get together for dinner. I may have told you this. One time we were eating at a restaurant that had a ramp, and he doesn't want anybody to help him. He's fine. He drives everywhere. He has one of those things that help him off the van, and he doesn't need a soul. And so I don't even open doors for him. I just walk with him where he's going. We go into this restaurant, and they have to move chairs for his wheelchair so he can sit up uh, next to the table. And when we got up to the table, the waitress came, and I said, give the check to me. He's a cripple. And besides, and besides that, he doesn't tip very well. And then can't looked down at his wheelchair and looked at the waitress and said, good Lord, when did this happen? <laughs> Kent knows the dark. Shortly after this happened, he asked if I'd come down and spend the day with him in Miami. And we went to a bar that was owned by a friend of his. And we sat over in a corner he said, Steve, there are things that I'm thinking that are really dark, and I can't tell them to anybody else but you, because everybody else would lose their faith. And so we prayed and talked for a very long time. So he's not shallow. He knows. But the last text that I got from him last week was a joke. <laughs> the laughter of the redeemed. Somebody this week sent me, have you seen that comedy bit by Bob Newhart when he's a therapist? And uh, this lady comes to receive therapy uh, for him. He asks the problem. She says, I have this horrible fear of being locked up in a box and buried. He said, I can help. And she said, how? He said, well, first let's talk about my fee. It's $5 for five minutes, and this won't take five minutes. She said, really? She, he said, yes. Are you ready? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop it. And then they laugh about it. And, and toward the end of the session, she says, what if I don't? He said, then I'll lock you up and bury you in a box. <laughs> I'd seen that before, but I laughed about it again. And I was working on what I was going to be teaching you this morning. And so if you want to chill out, experience the laughter of the redeemed, extrapolating from the text I just read to you, you can draw some principles that are very important. Stop it. What should you stop from Paul? Well, first, stop trying to make sense out of something that doesn't make any sense. I have a quote from Gerard Ford. He's the late uh, Lutheran theologian and Luther scholar. 
And it's a little bit long, but it's important, and I don't know anybody who says it any better. This is what he says. The gospel of justification by faith is such a shocker, such an explosion, because it is absolutely unconditional in its promise. It is not an if-then kind of statement, but because, therefore, pronouncement, because Jesus died and rose, your sins are forgiven, and you are righteous in the sight of God. It bursts open our little world that's shut up and barricaded behind our accustomed conditional thinking as some strange comment from goodness knows where, something we can't really seem to wrap our minds around, the logic of which appears closed to us. How can it be entirely, totally unconditional? Isn't that terribly dangerous? How can anyone say flat out, you're righteous, for Jesus' sake, period. Is there not some price to be paid, something however minuscule to be done? After all, there can't be such a thing as a free lunch, can there be? You see, we really are sealed up in the prison of our conditional thinking. It is terribly difficult for us to get out. And even if someone batters down the door and shatters the bars, chances are we will stay in the prison anyway. We seem always to want to hold out for something somehow, that little bit of something, and we do it with passion and an anxiety that betrays its true source. The old Adam that just wants to be left in control. This thing doesn't make any sense. If you've tried to convince with logic, and I'm all for classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, but it's hard sometimes. It's like, because this is crazy, it's like convincing a never-Trumper that Trump is the best president we've ever had, or to convince a Trump supporter that Trump is the devil incarnate. Just can't be done. There's this blank look because this is hard to explain without God's spirit. I used to love listening to George Beverly Shea seeing the wonder of it all. If he were around, I'd change the lyrics and ask him to sing this, the foolishness of it all. It, it really is. Tom sent me an email yesterday. There's a great quote in it from Nietzsche. And Nietzsche didn't say much of any import, to be frank with you. But he said this, and it's really good. This is what he said. Those who dance are considered insane by those who can't hear the music. Is that something else? So God is God. You can't understand this. 
I have no earthly idea why he likes me so much. He knows my secrets and you don't. I have, I have no idea why he called me to himself and invested in me the righteousness of Christ. But when I think about it, I laugh and laugh and laugh. There's something else. If you want to chill out and laugh a little bit more, quit trying to control what you can't control. That's what Paul is talking about here. God intervened, did his thing, despite everything else. Quit trying to control what you can't control. I hate vacations. That's because I'm godly. I'd rather serve Jesus. And if you believe that, you'll believe anything. I hate vacations because a friend pointed out, I hate not being in control. That's why I don't like parties. That's why I don't like Christmas. That's why I can't stand Disney. You can't control it. Control is at the heart sometimes of who we are. If you haven't noticed, I wear hearing aids. Let me tell you something about hearing aids you didn't know. (laughs) When you wear hearing aids, it makes things louder but you can't tell where it's coming from. We'll be sitting in a restaurant and I'll be answering a question asked by somebody three tables down the aisle. It's just crazy. And you don't know. When you don't have hearing aids, you, there's something about the mind that says that's coming from her and she's sitting over there and she's talking to you. When you have hearing aids, you think, who the... Who is talking to me? <laughs> I was telling George Bingham, who's here this morning, he's president of Key Life. And, he's, and I was telling him, Kathy was in his office, and I was saying, I don't know which one of you is talking, except Kathy's voice is higher than yours. And then George said, you know, that would be heaven for a ventriloquist. And I said, well, yeah, if you could get everybody to wear hearing aids, but you can't do that. You can't get everybody to be like you. You can't control a world that's too big for you. You can't change the narratives most people believe. You can't even fix yourself. I can't. I've tried. I'm struggling with stuff that I've been struggling with my whole life, and I've finally given up. And I thought, you know, God is sovereign. And he's good. And I'm going to leave things alone that are above my pay level. And you know what happens? With mercy and pilgrim's progress, I laugh and laugh and laugh. There's something else. If you're counting, uh, there are five points, if I remember all of them. Thirdly, quit trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense. 
Quit trying to control what you can't control. But thirdly, quit trying to protect what you can't protect. Notice that Paul in that second chapter says, I determine to know nothing before you except Jesus. That means he's setting aside his education, which is something else. His money, he's got money, he's setting that aside. He's setting aside his need to be thought of highly by other people. And I determine to, know, to not protect myself. If you read the seventh chapter of Romans, his confession is astounding. I wouldn't have said that. But he did, and he was the writer of most of the New Testament. And he's communicating to us the importance of that. We've, boy, we did good about that hurricane. Uh, I feel so sorry for those people, but different than you, I've been there. I've done that. And Andrew, we lost our house, thought we were going to die. I almost became a Christian. Scared the spit out of me. So I know what they're going through. And that looks like our neighborhood after Andrew. And it's a horrible, horrible kind of thing. I really did think we were going to die. I honestly did. And I was scared. But let me... But let me tell you, and we lived in a little apartment. Uh, my mother died during that time. We went up to the mountains and spent three months with her helping her die. And uh, They stole $50,000. Uh, the contractor did from us building the house back. We were in a little apartment about as big as a men's bathroom here at Bullock Creek. Had one window and it looked out on a brick wall. It was just a horrible time. And one Sunday morning, I went out to get my car, and it was gone. Somebody had stolen my car. Now, you need to know that before the hurricane, I would have gotten my gun, and I would have gone looking for them. Do <laughs> you know what I did? I went back into our little depressing apartment, and I said to Anna, Somebody stole God's car. <laughs> she said, what? I said, somebody stole God's car, the one he lets us use. And she started laughing. And I started laughing. And we got so tickled, we couldn't stop. And I thought, you know, I hate this stuff. But I feel more free now than I've ever felt in my whole life. Let your kids go. You can't protect them. Let your stuff alone. You can't protect it. You could lose it all tomorrow. Let it all go and you'll be free. And when you do let it go, you'll laugh and laugh and laugh. Number four, and we're getting there. And I know some of you are bored, and I know your names. <laughs> but I'm not going to stop till I get these five out. Fourthly, stop obsessing about sins that are already forgiven. 
Paul says, it's all yours. Sanctification and redemption. Not that it will be yours. It's yours right now. We interviewed Philip Yancey this week on our talk show. He's a friend of mine, and I like him a lot. I'm also jealous of him. He has never written a book that wasn't a bestseller. He wrote a book a number of years ago called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and another book similar. He wrote that first book with Dr. Paul Brand, a missionary doctor in India. And if you've never heard that name, he was Mother Teresa on steroids. <laughs> I mean, he's really something else. And Philip Yancey quoted something I heard him say before. He said, I heard Dr. Brand thank God for pain. And I asked him, what? And he said, I work with lepers. And the reason lepers lose fingers and arms and legs and eyes isn't because the disease gets it. It's because they can't feel pain. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll remove it quickly. If they put their hand on a hot stove, it stays there and burns up. I remembered in Taiwan when I was speaking for a leper colony, and I still have the cross that was chiseled by a guy by holding the knife in his teeth because he didn't have any arms. And I thought, Oh, that's what guilt is for. Some of you are feeling guilty. A friend of mine confessed his sin to me. I said, when did you do that? He said, 12 years ago. I said, 12 years ago? Are you crazy? And he said, yeah. And I've confessed it every day for 12 years. And I said with Bob Newhart, just stop it. Just stop it. Run, as Drew said, to God, to Jesus, and do two things. Thank him for the hug he'll give you no matter how dirty you are. And then thank him that he loved you before you even felt the pain. And then one other thing, and we're finished. Stop trying to write a future that has already been settled. Paul, throughout this passage, talks about what God does this and God does that and God does the other. This is what God is doing in the world. This is how he's fixing things. And if you read the book of Revelation, don't get a commentary. All it means is that God wins every battle. And in the end, he cleans up the mess. And you can't do a thing about it. But that's personal, too, isn't it? You know what my life's verse is? It's from Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I don't have any goals. Now, that's not good. And I'm not suggesting that for you, but I'm weird. I had goals, but they ended up in dust. Everything I've ever planned for me has gone awry and south. And so finally I said, you deal the cards. We'll play poker, and I'll do the best I can. Sometimes I still plan. 
I still give God a to-do list. I still tell him, what if he really loved me, he would heal my stupid hearing problem. But he won't, and I'm glad he won't. And when I think about how he's organized everything, the pain and the tears and the laughter, the places I've gone and what I've done and the people that I love, a lot better than I would have, I laugh and laugh and laugh. Somebody this week um, sent me a thing about fresh bananas. Whoever said it said, I haven't eaten fresh bananas in a long time. I buy them at the grocery store. But before I can eat the fresh ones, I have to eat the rotting ones that are sitting on the counter. And by the time I eat the rotting ones, the fresh ones have turned brown. And I haven't eaten a yellow banana in 30 years. And I thought about that. <laughs> if you're a Christian, almost always you get fresh bananas from the truth I just taught you. If you're not a Christian, we're glad here. And if you're saying to yourself, that doesn't make a bit of sense. I'm sorry. I, I really do wish I could help. But if you've listened to what I taught you and you've said, That's, I agree with that. Or you've said, I wish I could agree with that then you're either a Christian or you're going to be one very soon. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And by the way, if you need prayer, do let us know. Just click contact us in the app, then click prayer request.